Most of us are familiar with the rebuke leveled at William Carey, William Carey, the aspiring missionary to India. He was rebuked for his enthusiasm at a pastor's fraternal regarding missionary labors among pagan sinners in distant lands. An old pastor said to him at this pastor's fraternal, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Eliab, David's older brother, might just as well have said to his little brother, David, go back home, for the Lord doesn't need you to save us from that giant Philistine. Or the serpent might just as well have said to Adam, don't waste your energy on that garden. For the Almighty can take care of it without you. And the sinner might just as well say to the preacher, Quiet down, old man. When God pleases to convert me, he'll do it without your efforts or mine. You see, it's an unseemly perversion of biblical truth when men hide behind the cloak of divine sovereignty in order to escape the obligation of personal responsibility. We quoted John Murray last night who said, idleness so often puts on the cloak of piety. And we're prone to wear that cloak. God has assigned man, as we've read here in Genesis 1, with the daunting task of subduing the earth and ruling over its creatures. We're to exercise dominion. However, there's a problem that arises. Sin and the fall has placed in our hearts an indwelling aversion to our dominion duty. And because of this, we make excuses. We so often say, we'll pray about it, when in reality, we should act on it. We say, well, we'll leave it in the hands of God when we really should engage our own hands. We do well to recognize our crafty tendency to camouflage our ungodly sloth and cowardice and fear and passivity in the garb of spiritual nobility. And so, we're exploring our God-ordained duty to exercise manly dominion in our lives. Now, last night, we looked at the creational foundation in Genesis 1, 27 through 29. And there we learned that we have been assigned as men, made in the image of God, to aggressively seek to dominate our environment as opposed to passively permitting our environment to dominate us. On the pool table of life, we are not to be passive purple four balls. We are to be stick-wielding billiard players. We're to look over the table, examine the options, set out a plan, and then pursue it and execute it. Last night, we addressed the first practical application 
of this responsibility of manly dominion, and it was in the area of manly dominion in vocational laboring. After the service last night, I met a young man in the lobby. Uh, his name was Eugene. I don't know if Eugene is still here this morning. 15-year-old, he was here with his dad, and I'm, oh, there he is. Uh, it enthuses me to see young men here. I know Greg was here, and Brian was here as well. And I told Eugene how you're in the sweet spot of life. You know, you're age 15 to 22 or 23. That's the crucial season of life where you need to grasp these ideas of manly dominion and vocational laboring. And if your son isn't here, if your grandson isn't here, you need to seek to get him in a corner and talk to him and try to inculcate these principles to him. One man likened this sweet spot of life in which Eugene is in and Greg is in and Brian is in as the, the gun muzzle season or the gun barrel season of life. If you're a bullet, your entire trajectory is determined by the little period of time that you're in the barrel. The amount of explosiveness and the direction that you experience while in the barrel determines the distance, how far you're going to go, and where you're going to land. And in many ways, Eugene, this little season of life, where you are right now through age 23, you've got to use it to its optimum. Because after that season, one engineer said to me, basically, you're just ballistic. Maybe a little, maybe a little wind movement may change, but basically, what you're going to do in life is determined, in the end, by what you do in those sweet spot, gun barrel years of life. So use it well. Tell our young men about it. But also, I know there are older men here who are long out of the gun barrel. In fact, there was a man who heard uh, this series that I preached a number of years ago, and he came to my church about five years ago, and he said, Pastor Chansky, I've heard those tapes and I just want you to know that I, in my early 40s, was so affected by this that I was moved out of my passive contentiveness in my job. I knew I wasn't investing all of my talents. And because of listening to that series, I have changed jobs and God has opened up wonderful doors in my life. That comment encouraged me to take the contents of that series and put it down to pen and paper and eventually put it in a book. So I'm speaking to you men who are not in the gun barrel season of life. You're older and you may hang your heads and you say, it's too late for me. No, it's not too late for you because you can be like one of those Gemini rockets. You know, you get the booster after a while. You shed one, you get a new booster, can take you to a new orbit. Uh, though you be 40 years old or 50 years old, hopefully there'll be a sense of push and thrust that you get on the basis of this material here. I hope this is uplifting and that this is not oppressive to us as we hear the Lord's requirements and commission given to us. So, we looked last night at manly dominion in vocational laboring. Come with me to the second main principle of manly dominion, and that is, and I hope you have your handouts there, manly dominion in decision-making. Manly dominion in decision-making. You may wonder, why, why go into the area of decision-making? That doesn't sound very practical. It sounds very theoretical and esoteric. 
but it is so practical because the womb of our life motions is found in our thought processes. And many of us need to clean out our thinking. We need to clean many of the old cobwebs of passivity out if we're to act aggressively with dominion. We're struck with practical questions like, should I take this job? Should I buy this home? Should I attend this school? Should I join this church? Should I confront that brother? Should I continue in this relationship? Should I pursue the ministry? Should I press forward? The issue of decision making is so crucial. Let's discuss, first of all, some pop perspectives. I want to discuss popular perspectives first because sometimes in order to write in a chalkboard, you've got to erase all of the scribble that's been there in the past. So let's look at some of the pop perspective scribbling that some of us may bring into the room this morning. When it comes to decision making, there is an elaborate folk theology of divine guidance that has been built up in many of our minds. For some of us, it was developed in evangelical circles, and this folk theology of decision making holds millions of Christians' minds hostage in a passive straitjacket because we want to do God's will, but sometimes we don't understand how God's will is discovered. A woman about 14 years ago came to my house. Our house was up for sale. Her name was Terry. And Terry walked through our house and said, the Lord led me here. I said, well, that's great that the Lord led you here. She says, yeah, I was driving down Plainfield Avenue, and the Holy Spirit told me to drive down your street. And there I saw your sign. She was referring to this idea of uh, an inward voice, this idea of an inward urging. You ever hear people say, I felt led to do this? And that's how they make their decisions. I just had an impression. That's the first thing I want to look at here. Impressions. You see, many Christians believe that the ideal Christian life is a life of dependent communion with God. And we always need to be in touch by way of the impressions he gives to us what we're to do. Near my home in Zealand, there's a small airport I drive by. And there's a windsock at the end of the runway. It's this very light nylon. And it's sensitive to the slightest breeze. And some will say, that's the way we need to be as Christians. We need to be light and sensitive to any whispering breeze that God might give to us by way of impressions. I once read in a ministerial magazine, a pastor was sitting in his study in the afternoon and as he was studying to prepare a sermon, he said that he was given an impression that he needed to go off to the hospital. And he didn't know why, but he went off to the hospital. And when he got to the hospital, he walked the halls, and there in the lobby, he found a woman that he was able to witness to. And he says, there's exhibit A of how we need to be sensitive to the Lord's impressions in our lives. I just as a side, you know, sometime in the afternoon, I'm studying hard. 
I get this impression that I'd like to go off to the golf course. I think I could find somebody to witness to there on the first tee of a certainty. But I don't think that's the way that we should be directing our Christian lives. And sometimes it's even the idea of hunches, just a hunch. Terry, who came to buy my house, and she eventually did, but she would be moved and directed by hunches. It was about two years later, I was in the Holland area looking for a bicycle for my son. I'm really cheap, so I wanted to buy a used bike somewhere. And I was driving, you know how you're looking for a used car, and you know, same thing with a used bike. Driving down the street, I had a hunch that down this long residential street, there might be a bike for sale for my boy. So I drove down the street, and I kept driving, and I kept driving until I got to the end, and there was no bicycle at all. The Lord was teaching me a lesson. Hunches are hunches, and that's about all that they are. We can't live our lives merely by impressions. We need to get rid of this cobweb from some of our minds. See, because some of us have been taught that we're most spiritually minded when decisions of life are based on the mystical and the emotional instead of on the logical and the rational. And this is based on the idea that God is still in the business of giving us personal disclosure by way of fresh revelation, apart from the word of God. Now, the fundamental problem with this is that we are actually asking God to give us new revelation as if we were in the apostolic age. I know Terry Green, who bought my house, would have gone to Acts chapter 8 and said, well, the Holy Spirit said to Philip that he was to go down to the road. We don't live in the apostolic age anymore. Consider what our own confession says in the very first paragraph of chapter 1. Paragraph 1. It pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. And afterward, for the better propagating and preserving of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, now listen, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary. Now listen to this. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Special revelation is no longer to be our standard joy, but rather we are to be led by the written word of God. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that the house shopper, that the pastor, that the one who's shopping for a bike, that the man of God may be adequate for every good work. You see, otherwise we're going to end up, if not anchored in the scriptures, we're going to be tossed by every wind of emotion and by every breeze of feeling. That's the fundamental problem of impressions. It expects new revelation. But the secondary problem is that impressionism 
encourages us to suspend and detour our minds and directs us into a mental passivity, making us basically passive purple four balls. Romans 12.2 says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are to be directed by the scriptures and the employment of our minds. So we're looking at pop perspectives. The first thing I want to set aside and erase the board of is this notion of impression. Secondly, providence. Providence. There are some people who believe that God guides us almost exclusively by open or closed doors. Can you relate to that? God sovereignly directs the circumstances of life to navigate us down the right path. A young man says he's in the seminary. I know my life is a mess. I know my family life is out of control. I know in my personal life I got a pornography problem. However, that church has extended to me a call and therefore it's God's will for my life that I would take up that responsibility to shepherd that flock. Why? Because he's opened a door for me in my life. Another man says, well, I sent in my job application, but since I've heard nothing, I see it as God closing the door. Well, wait a minute. When you send in a job application, aren't you supposed to go and bang on the door after you sent the letter to the address? Yes, but, but I just seem to no response as God's closing the door. Do you see how in many ways this gratifies our passive purple fourballism? Or how about this one? You know, I'm going to call this girl and I'm going to use it somewhat as a fleece. If I call and it's busy, you know how hard it is to call a girl when you're a young man. If I call and it's busy, I'm going to take that as God's providentially directing me that the door is closed. But if she answers, well, I'll consider God has opened the door. I don't think we should direct our lives that way. <laughs> By providence. This whole idea of dealing with romantic situations. Uh, Pastor Martin has been uh, engaging in a little friendship with uh, my mother, and they've talked about various prospects of the future. And on the way from the airport to his home, he says, you know, I live in, I live in Cedar Grove, he tells me. And then he said to me, as I was talking to your mother about the prospects of maybe our friendship becoming more than a friendship, I told her, I said, you know, Dorothy, that I live in Cedar Grove. And he says, you know, Dorothy, you realize where my mom lives? She lives in Hudsonville, and her street is Cedar Grove Trail. <laughs> and he quoted the catechism to her about providence. <laughs> and, I, and I told him that my sheep are trained better than that. See, we can't be directed merely by providence and suppose it. <laughs> well, he said, he said if I'd ever use that example in his pulpit as a basis of decision making, he'd drive me out of the pulpit and instantly. <laughs> but you see, all of this, I believe, is unbiblical anti dominion thinking. And though I believe providence is one 
important variable, it is not decisive. There's a man in our church who got a job in central Ohio. And we were very concerned about his going to that job in central Ohio because there wasn't a church there. But God gave me this job offer. And it was a salary increase. Eventually he was there for two months and he was back. But the point is, you don't make decisions simply on the basis of open doors, but on the basis of biblical principle. That is what we're to use in our decision making. Think of Jonah. Jonah was told by God to go off to a distant place. He was to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel there. He didn't want to go there. He went in the opposite direction to Tarshish. Now let me ask you, when he went down to the docks, was there an open door? Yeah. He had a smooth journey to Joppa. When he arrived, he found a ship to his desired destination, and he even found a hammock available under the deck, and there was a fair wind. So it was God's will for him to go to Tarshish because of all these providential indicators. It's okay. No, he was going contrary to the clear word of God. And we need to decide according to the word of God. Romans 1.13, Paul himself says, I was prevented from visiting Rome. Was that being prevented an indicator that he shouldn't go to Rome? Not necessarily. In 1522, he said, Satan hindered us from coming to you. You realize Satan oftentimes slams doors shut. And it's our obligation to get a jigsaw sometimes and cut through doors that have been shut in our faces. Second, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul says to them in Thessalonica, I wanted to come more often than once, but Satan thwarted me. You see, the direction for our life is not to be found in passively watching the ambiguous winds of providence or observing the open or shut doors of circumstance. It's not like we're Sherlock Holmes and we follow the breadcrumbs of how God is directing us. No, we are to search the scriptures. And all of this being directed merely by providence in many ways can be a four-ball cop-out keeping us from making gut-wrenching decisions and pursuing difficult projects. Let me just read from Gary Friesen's book, Decision-Making in the Will of God. He says, interestingly, though Christians today speak of open doors that are closed, Scripture never does. The need for open doors certainly implies the existence of some that are closed, but that doesn't seem to be the mentality of Paul. If he were sovereignly prevented from pursuing a plan, and yet the plan itself was unsound, he simply waited and tried again later. He did not view a blocked endeavor as a closed-door sign from God that his plan was faulty. He accepted the fact that he could not pursue that plan at that time. Yet he continued to desire, pray, and plan for the eventual accomplishment of the goal. 
And so we consider providence. Sometimes we have to go contrary to the grain of providence. A pastor friend of mine was living in a home, and he saw because of the expanded size of his family, he needed to buy a new home. And he found a beautiful venue a few miles away and a great price. So he put a bid on the home and the bid was accepted, contingent upon the sale of his former home. He had three months in which to sell his home. Three months passed, the home didn't sell. What would you say? God's closing the door. But this pastor said, no, no, I'm so convinced that on the basis of the financial windfall of the acceptance of that bid and the benefit it'll bring to my family that I should actually go and with some financing actually purchase the second home and still hold the ownership of the first home until it sells, lest I lose that opportunity for my family. And he went out on a limb. It was a reasonable risk, but I believe it was a wise decision he made. Eventually the first home did sell and he was able to make things square financially. Sometimes we have to go out of a comfort zone, even go beyond what some might consider to be a closed door. So we're looking at manly dominion in decision making. Pop perspectives of impressions. Let's wipe that away. And providence, exclusively directing, wipe that away too. How about peace? Peace. Supposedly, in many circles, the feeling of peace within is the ultimate umpire of the soul when it comes to decision-making. We've got a tough decision to make. We say, well, I know it's the right thing to do because I have a peace about it. And peace is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, but I think this is an improper use of peace to use it as the umpire ultimately in decision-making. A college classmate of mine, a young lady, had been married for a number of years and then she decided to divorce her husband. When confronted about this, she, a professing Christian, said, no, he's neither deserted me and he hasn't committed adultery. But regarding my divorcing him, God has just given me such a peace about it. Justifying her going contrary to the scriptures by this umpire of peace. Or how about this? When I think of confronting that brother regarding his sin, I just get a knot in my stomach. I don't have peace about it. So I'm just going to bury this matter. Or when I think of pursuing a new job, I, I just don't have peace. I get very nervous about that idea. We can't let peace subjectively alone direct us. Jonah, as he was in his hammock under the deck, the text says in Jonah 1 that he was in a deep sleep. He was very peaceful in his disobedience against God, but he was not on a course that was pleasing to God. You think of the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane. The passage tells us that he was troubled in his spirit. The agony of Gethsemane. We could certainly say he didn't have peace about his pursuit 
of the cross. But you see, he was doing the will of his Father. Following the word of his heavenly Lord. And so that's what we need to do sometimes going into things that we don't feel peace about. But the word of God directed us to go there. I can remember when I was a young man in college, a young lady that I had a relationship with. And I was very romantically drawn to this young lady, but there was something about the relationship that wasn't right. And as I searched the scriptures, I believed it was necessary for me to terminate the relationship. I can still remember the night. I said, this is it. We're done with tears from me and tears from her. I drove away in my red Dodge Dart. And by the time I got about two or three miles away, the tears started pouring down. And I felt like I got to turn around and drive back. I didn't have any peace about having broken up with this girl. I didn't have any peace about it for a month. But I knew on the basis of the principles of the word of God, it was the right thing to do. And I had to mortify my feelings and my emotions. One man has written this. He says, the absence of peace may be due to God, Satan, an angel, a demon, emotions, hormonal imbalance, insomnia, medication, illness, occupational stress, an approaching deadline, nagging uncertainties, timidity, cowardice, or a new challenge. Sometimes you don't want to go after that promotion because it's going to stretch you. And it's going to make you have nights of stress without peace. But the Lord is calling us up maybe to a higher level. So, I hope that we have suitably erased the board from some of the pop perspectives. And I want you to come with me now to some biblical perspectives about decision making. Biblical perspectives. Many of those pop perspectives, they just make us passive purple floorballs, not men of dominion. Again, in Genesis 1.27, manly dominion tells us we're to subdue and we are to rule. We are to aggressively employ our God-given tools to make decisions. And by the way, those tools are not a pair of lots that we would cast or dice. The tools have to do with these things. Notice on your notes there. First, employ your mind. Employ your mind. John Stott says this, God's promises of guidance are not to save us the bother of thinking. Sinclair Ferguson writes, we want to abandon our normal thought processes when God wants us to bear the burden of thinking through his purposes for our lives. And that's difficult to actually take a piece of paper sometimes and write down the pros and the cons. What are the chief biblical priorities in this matter? That's hard. That's painful. That puts the responsibility on us instead of trying to sometimes shove it off to God as we won't take up our personal responsibility. McLeod says this, sadly, many Christians think they need not bother to think, and they plead for guidance 
really desiring to dispense with discipline and rigorous thought. But men, we are made in the image of God. And God displays, just like in the creation, he, he premeditatedly had a plan for what he was going to do with the world that was formless and void. And he established a plan, and in six days he executed that plan. That's exactly what we've got to do. We've got to employ our minds in this. Again, Romans 12, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or Colossians, excuse me, Ephesians 4, 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Or 1 Peter 1.13, gird up the loins of your minds. So firstly, we need to employ our minds in godly decision making. But secondly, search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. I've already quoted 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. And is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That the man of God, now think of this, might be adequate for every good work. The scriptures, they are our compass. A careful study of the scripture with a sound hermeneutic will give us direction in life. Now I say, with a sound hermeneutic, proper interpretive principles. We can't, as many do, use the scriptures as a crystal ball. Well, I'll open them up and I'll see what they say concerning this situation. Think of a man in Michigan. Maybe he's a mailman there. And every year, about uh, mid to late February, he grows weary with the cold weather pounding the icy pavement. His wife says, this happens every year, Pastor. He wants to move to Florida. So he's going to search the scriptures regarding what God's direction would be in his life. And he randomly opens the Bible to Acts 8, 26, and it says, arise and go south to the road toward Gaza. That's not the way we should search the scriptures. Though, believe it or not, many do. Many use the scriptures as a kind of a crystal ball. Or not even to take strong impressions related to the scriptures. For example, maybe that man is in late February and he really wants to go to Florida. He's tired of the cold winters in Michigan. Second Samuel 7, 3 in his consecutive reading. And sometimes the issue is just the consecutive reading. It came in my consecutive reading. How can I argue with that? It says in Second Samuel 7, 3, do all that is in your heart. You know, we can twist the scriptures, can't we? To do what we really selfishly want to do. The enemy did that in Matthew chapter 4 in dealing with the Lord Jesus in the wilderness. We cannot twist the scriptures. We need to search them carefully with a sound hermeneutic. It's not always a matter of taking out your concordance and working through it in a very careful and extended way. I think that John Newton has best explained how the seasoned and mature Christian who knows his Bible is able to make wise decisions. It's not cumbersome steps necessarily. Listen to what Newton says here. 
Newton writes, by treasuring up the doctrines of the scriptures, the precepts, the promises, the examples, and the exhortations of the scriptures in their minds, Christians' minds, and daily comparing themselves with the rule by which they walk, Christians grow into a habitual frame of spiritual wisdom and acquire a gracious taste of wisdom which enables them to judge of right and wrong with a degree of readiness and certainty as a musical ear judges of sounds. And they are seldom mistaken because they are influenced by the love of Christ which rules in their hearts and a regard to the glory of God which is the great object that they have in view. That's a lot of horse sense provided there by John Newton. So we need to search the scriptures. But thirdly, in biblical principles for decision making, we need to seek counsel. Seek counsel. Proverbs 24, 6 says, in the abundance of counselors is victory. I tell my son oftentimes, or my sons, if you behold a lovely maiden, and you think that this is the be-all, and you think that this is the girl, the woman that the Lord has for you to marry, don't trust yourself alone. You can't see straight oftentimes. When you're Twitter-pated like that, your glasses get all fogged up. You need to ask somebody else. You need to ask dad. You need to ask your mom. You need to ask a pastor, a wise Christian counselor. And notice how when Lemuel seeks the wisdom of mom in Proverbs chapter 31. What does mom give? Does she say, well, when you meet the right girl, you'll just know. Sometimes I hear even seasoned saints speaking in terms like that. Or the old idea, you'll hear bells. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm not saying that romantic chemistry is irrelevant. What does mom give to Lemuel in Proverbs 31? An objective list of Christian character. Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, son, but a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. Look for these objective things, and I'll tell you what I think as to whether or not this young lady fulfills those requirements. So seek counsel in your making a decision to go down to Florida and uproot your family, you know, your your wife may have all kinds of friends and network relationships in the church. Your son is a point guard in the basketball team, and it's his senior year, and I can go on and on with all the other contacts, and you're going to uproot them now selfishly because you don't like a little cold weather in February. Search the scriptures, but seek counsel. Seek counsel as well. Then fourthly, pray fervently. Pray fervently. talk about manly dominion and being aggressive and using our minds and taking up our personal responsibility. This avoids the ditch of passivity on one side of the road, right? But wherever there's a road with a ditch on one side, typically there's a ditch on the other side. It's very possible for manly dominion to degenerate into atheistic enterprising on the other side. Turn with me to James chapter 4. 
You know this passage, and some of you may have even been thinking about this passage last night and this morning. Boy, that pastor, he's calling us to make plans and then to execute those plans. He's pressing us with our personal responsibility. And you've thought of this passage, and rightly so. James 4.13, Come now, you who say, tomorrow or today, we shall go to such and such a place and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. Amen. Amen to that as well. So when we make decisions, we just don't take our worm-like minds, or as Pastor Martin has said, our brains that have just a cupful of gray matter in them, and rely on them and trust in our own decision-making skills. We need to pray fervently. James 1, 5 says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Because even our most brilliantly conceived planning, prayerlessly executed, is doomed to failure. And just think of Joshua in Exodus chapter 11. He's going to fight against the Amalekites in the valley below. And bless God, we have Moses with his hands uplifted, with Aaron and her helping, uh, lifting up holy hands to God in prayer on the mountain above. And we need to have both dimensions in our lives. Mowing down our obstacles in the valley, but also to have holy hands lifted up on the mountain. We need to be men of fervent prayer if we're to have the wisdom to make wise decisions. And then fifthly, make a decision. Make a decision. Many of us men, and by the way, I say many of us, understand, when I'm calling on you to not be a passive purple four ball and be a Q-stick wielding player and to get out there and be a man of dominion, you know who I'm preaching to first. It's me. So many of these things I've found the problems on the tablet of my own heart. So I'm right there with you. I know what it is to be overwhelmed with my own sense of passivity. Many of us men are plagued by a chronic putting off of decisions. It's true, because I've talked to your wife about it. Our wives can be very frustrated by us. We say, well, she, she says, look, honey, we've been talking about where we're going to send the kids to school this year. We've been talking about it since March. Honey, it's August. We've got to make a decision. And our response has been, well, I've got to take some time to wrap my brain around this, honey. But beloved, that is not a noble thing to be putting off decisions. It's so often indecisiveness and procrastination. It can be a form of passive cowardice. It says in Proverbs 22 and verse 13, again, we quoted it last night, there is a line in the streets, a line in the streets, and sometimes we just want to hide in our homes and not stick out our necks and make a decision. We've got to subdue the prowling beast under our feet. We've got to make decisions. We've got to be decisive men. You've 
heard about Jim Elliott, the great martyr missionary to the Alka Indians in South America. Great man. I can't even shine the man's shoes. However, something interesting about his life, uh, Elizabeth Elliott wrote the book Passion and Purity, and some of you men or maybe your wives or your daughters have read this book. It's a book that traces the six-year courtship between Jim Elliott and Bette Elizabeth Elliott. And in this book, it shows how Jim had this lofty idea of spirituality. And the question was, was Jim going to marry Bette? And this went on for six years, and sometimes Jim would say, I got a green light now. No, I got a yellow light now. No, it's a red light. And the lights kept changing on Elizabeth. And Jim was claiming, I'm seeking the will of God, this man of great spirituality. Well, one day Elizabeth was visiting the home of the Elliots, and Mom Elliot took Elizabeth off into the laundry room, closed the door, and she said, Elizabeth, I know these Elliot men. They can never make up their minds. If I were you, I would tell Jim, it's now or it's never. And some of us can be so much like Jim Elliot, being indecisive, not making decisions, hiding behind our passivity and saying, well, this is spirituality that's causing us to put it off. No, make a decision. Any, the worst thing to do is to not make a decision. That's the worst decision of all. And oftentimes we lose great opportunity because we delay and because we hesitate. If you're playing billiards and you have a time limit per shot rule, after the other man shoots, you've got two minutes to shoot. The worst thing you can do is keep circling the table indecisive about what it is that you're going to do and you lose your turn. Oftentimes we do that on the table of life. Make a decision. And then sixthly, carry it through. Carry it through. If your decision is made on sound principles, don't allow minor obstacles to derail the decision and say, well, there's a roadblock and I shouldn't continue on. I know of a young man who was pursuing a mechanical engineering degree. Chose that out of high school. Went into college his freshman year and hit the obstacle of Calc 1. Calculus 1. First test, got a C minus. The guy had never seen anything worse than a B plus in high school. He almost got a D. And his first thought was, this is, this is an obstacle. Uh, this is God's way of showing me that I should drop this class and not pursue engineering. Well, he talked with some wise men who say, look, this is not God telling you necessarily to quit. It's God's telling you to engage yourself more intensely. The very next test, he got an A. And he continued on. And that's the way that we need to be oftentimes in our decision. We've made a decision, carried the decision through, and don't allow small hurdles to shut us down. Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah had made the decision. He was going to go from Syria over to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. In the text, we're described, it's described for us in Nehemiah 2. He took a nighttime ride on his mount, and there was overwhelming, overwhelming rubble. And then later on, there was military threat from Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. 
Then there was usurious infighting among the Jews of Jerusalem. Then there was an assassination plot against Nehemiah. Was Nehemiah derailed from his decision to rebuild Jerusalem? No. He carried his decision through. The text says in 52 days he completed the wall. It also says in the very next verse, this was accomplished with the help of God. But he continued through with his holy resolution. He had made a decision. There was a time when I wanted to send a letter to a brother in a distant place, and this was seven, eight years ago, and I just started to use email, and I wrote the letter, and this letter was press pressing a brother's conscience about a certain matter. I biblically considered the letter, I prayed through it, and after it was done, I put it in my outbox, and I pushed send. And there was a computer malfunction. So I thought to myself, well, maybe I shouldn't send that letter. It says, God's, I, I pushed send again. And I couldn't get it again. So I pulled it all back, laid it out in front, and I, and I prayed over this. Lord, is there something in this letter that I shouldn't send? Is this a, a, a goad that you're driving into me to keep me from going this direction? And I looked over the letter and I prayed again. I thought, no, this is something that I must do. These are words that ought to be delivered. And it wasn't until the eighth time that I hit send and it went. But my resolution was, look, if I, if this computer isn't going to work and I have to write this down with crayon and send it by a carrier pigeon, I'm going to send it. <laughs> because I believe, biblically speaking, according to wisdom, this is something that should be done. So there, I believe, is a, a helpful survey of some biblical principles of how we are to make decisions.